From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. But first and foremost, before we get to all of that, the pomp, the circumstance, I want to get to this story because I just finished hosting on Saturday our Truth and Reconciliation Day show, uh, something I think I was really proud of. I got a lot of good feedback to which I say thank you to all that uh, interacted or sent me their well wishes. But this I just can't get past it. I don't. I can't wrap my head around why BC Conservative leader John Rustad would assume that the Soji movement is similar to residential schools. It's not being received well. I thought that might fly under the radar. Uh, not the case. Wilson Williams is the Squamish Nation counselor, kind enough to join me this afternoon. Wilson, well, let's get into this because reality is, is we always see online comparisons, comparables, but I just can't even put these remotely close to each other. The challenges of our First Nations and Indigenous people in the residential schools and the potential to educate our kids about Soji, I would assume that that uh, doesn't sit well with you. No, you know, having it allowed to be sinking in the last couple days has been um, challenging to digest, but it's, uh, I worry for our our survivors out there that, you know, when we're taking, think we're taking a step forward, we take a half step back because of incidents like this. And I think the thing that I'm surprised with is that he's pushing forward on the narrative. He didn't come forward and say, yeah, maybe I went a little too far with this. If anything, yesterday he was talking about the fact that he was unapologetic. He says, quote, when I look at Orange Shirt Day, it was founded on taking away parents' rights, indigenous parents' rights to raise their children. The government believed that they knew better, unquote. I guess because I've taken the time to educate myself on this specifically in the last couple of weeks, maybe more than I usually have, to me, I see very few comparisons. Yeah, you know, I <laughs> to compare, it's, it's you know, it, he shouldn't have used this day, you know, to compare, uh, compare the facts here, but he, he used the day of truth and reconciliation to his own agenda, and, you know, that it's not the first time it's happened. I'm assuming it won't be the last, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of education he, he requires as well, even though if he's, fulfilling uh leadership agenda for the conservative party or he's just fulfilling a platform of uh his own agenda you know there's a human side to it that's been really overlooked here wilson williams is with the squamish nation he's a counselor there wilson uh i i guess just to push this forward and we'll talk about this we'll open up the phones in the next segment to all of our listeners but we just had our Truth and Reconciliation Day. What are some of the positives beyond John Rustad and his comments? What are some of the things that you're starting to see from government that are making you feel that reconciliation is is actually a possibility? Yes, you know, uh, we look at reconciliation in action, you know, and this past week itself has been um, very heartwarming. You know, that we've had many events throughout uh, Indigenous country and Turtle Island across Canada, but, you know, when we even aren't participating from our own home, whether there's people at home that are, are, are shut in and can't, can't get out, you know, you flick on the TV and there's national um, networks taking part and showcasing, um, not just showcasing, sorry, but really, really having indigenous leaders, survivors, people able to share their voice and stories of, of the, the, the dark history that, uh, um, you know, that's coming to light now in Canada. But at the same time, it's empowering. 
because we're allowed to use our voice. We're in spaces to share stories. And all of this is part of the healing, you know, and, but it's also us coming together and uniting and a big part of that to see and witness is a lot is good medicine for our people and indigenous country. One of the things that really took me back um, in preparation for the show that I did this past Saturday was the simple ask that comes from our first nations people. They just want everybody to educate themselves, which to me is such a, a supple, a humble request. And then when you see uh, a leadership's, I guess you would say quotation or thought process on this, that's not educating themselves. That's thinking before they speak. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, some good leadership, for example, our premier BC, David Eby, you know, sent out a, a quote of empowerment in the day of truth and reconciliation, but then he attended events, events across Vancouver and BC here, but you can tell some of the, the way they hold themselves is they're sitting and listening they're educating themselves. You know, a big part of our culture is having your, having an open heart and mind, but at the same time, having your, your ears open to, to soak in like a sponge on what you're hearing. And that's, you know, that's a major part of the mutual respect. Yeah, I, I've uh, I've been able to step back and kind of see it from a couple of different perspectives. And the one perspective I just can't wrap my head around is the conservative leader, John Rustad. So, you know what, Wilson, thank you for coming on today. Uh, I'm very proud of what's been accomplished over there in the Squamish Nation. I used to coach a couple of girls, basketball players over there, and uh, they were the best players on my team. I'll tell you this. But more than anything, keep up the good work. Thank you for everything that you've done, and thank you for the education this afternoon. Oh, uh, thanks, Rob. We miss you over here in North Van, but uh, we'll hope to catch up soon. Oh, I'm thanks always around. Good work. I'm fan for Jill just for today, 35 minutes after 12 o'clock. I hope you're getting around, and I hope you brought your umbrella today. <laughs> it is sloppy outside to wrap up this long weekend, to say the least. Well, you know, another story that came across the desk this weekend, nearly two-thirds of the overdose deaths here in British Columbia so far in 23, uh, 2023 have come after smoking illicit drugs. We talk about injection sites, we talk about those numbers, but 65% of the overdose deaths in this uh, province in 2023 came after smoking drugs, just 15% involving injections. That's a really big differentiation. To talk a little bit more about this, Nicole Luongo, Systems Change Coordinator for the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition, kind enough to join me. Nicole, good afternoon. Hi there, thanks for having me. Well, let's get right into this because there's the old obligatory, the numbers never lie, but uh, when you see 65% of overdose deaths in 2023 coming from smoking drugs, why is that number so glaringly large? Uh, there are a number of factors, kind of in the most narrow sense. It's because we have seen a lack of inhalation options when it comes to safe consumption sites. So the majority of the safe consumption sites available for people who use illegal drugs still only support injection. I'll also note that uh, people who do have access to what we refer to as safe supply or prescriber-based routes for accessing pharmaceutical-grade alternatives to the illegal drug supply are still heavily uh, predicated on routes of administration that don't involve inhalation. And this is, of course, set against the backdrop of just a real lack of political will to meaningfully intervene in the unregulated drug crisis. 
Well, I think, you know, numbers change, and I was real curious when I saw the 65% coming in from smoking as opposed to 15 for injections. I'm curious to know what those numbers would have been prior to the safe injection sites, because if it is, in fact, working, and we're starting to see the numbers skew towards smoking as opposed to injections, then maybe we need to put a little more effort on trying to find secondary sites where we can have these people that are smoking at least be housed as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And people have always used, you know, drugs in multiple ways. It's unusual for someone to only consume through one route. And, you know, deaths related to inhalation have always been high. Of course, those numbers are increasing, but we do absolutely need options uh, for safe consumption for people who inhale their drugs. You know, I think of Vancouver and one of the challenges that a politician might face, and I'm just going to try to wear the shoe on the other side here just to make sure that I'm you know, giving both sides of this. Maybe the reason that the politicians don't want to touch this the way that it needs to be touched is because the injection sites that are in place get a lot of backlash from those within the community. So I guess the question is, how do you get a politician who's looking for votes interested in something that they know is going to be a real hot button topic within their community? Well, I think you've really gotten at the heart of the issue, which, as I said, was kind of this lack of political will. Unfortunately, we are still really narrowly focused on kind of downstream interventions, by which I mean trying to reverse overdoses after they've already occurred, rather than preventing overdoses by introducing a safe and regulated drug supply. So on the one hand, we do need politicians to kind of step up to the plate and uh, ensure that these sites are open wherever there is need, which is an imperative under the 2016 uh, emergency declaration. That being said, I think we as a society also need to really recognize that all of these overdoses are preventable and should be prevented through the introduction of a safe and regulated drug supply. You know, for those who kind of roll their eyes at the safe drug supply, the reality is, is it improves the overall safety of a community. And I think that's what a lot of people seem to forget. And, and, and I don't say that not everybody understands this, but the reality is, is, you know, you talk about dirty drugs and you talk about the challenges that come with that. But, you know, people will say, well, how do we have a safe drug supply? How can we actually be giving these users drugs? But the reality is, is I think education is really key in this one. And I think that's a part of the problem is everybody scoffs at this when in actuality it helps with healthcare providers, support services, uh, you know, even helps with legal repercussions. Of course. Yeah. And when people do kind of scoff at the idea of having a safe regulated drug supply, I am quick to point out that alcohol is a drug. Tobacco is a drug. Caffeine is a drug. And all of these drugs come with some inherent risk. And we are not, you know, naive to that fact. But by criminalizing drugs and making it nearly impossible to get a predictable supply of drugs, we are exacerbating all of those risks. Nicole Luongo is a systems change coordinator with the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. Nicole, where are we seeing progress? I mean, I've brought you my problem. I'm curious to know if there's a solution on the horizon. Is there one area in this, um, you know, challenge with all the overdoses that we're actually making some headway? You know, I really wish I could say we're making progress. Um, As you said earlier, the numbers don't lie. I don't believe we are. And in fact, this year, I think we've seen some pretty significant regression. Uh, You know, BC did introduce a decriminalization pilot at the beginning of this year. It was very incremental to begin with. And before it even had a chance to really get off the ground or be properly evaluated, we're already seeing it scaled back. Safe supply was introduced uh, at the federal level at the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, but right now we are seeing a wave of de-prescribing. So already we only had about 5,000 people, which is a very small number, 
having any access to safe supply. And right now those numbers are decreasing consistently. The only real kind of point of optimism, as I see it, is what community-based groups are doing. So right now we have networks of grassroots drug user organizations kind of filling gaps in government policy and stepping up to the plate to keep one another safe, which they and we have always done historically. So, you know, I I personally find uh, a bit of optimism just in the lengths that people are willing to go to keep their peers and loved ones alive. But when it comes to the government, they've been wildly disappointing. Do you get nervous when you hear the rhetoric from certain parties that if they, you know, become the party of power, that they're going to just completely blow this up? I mean, you hear that narrative in certain provinces and, and sometimes just flat out across the country. I know that you guys already feel abandoned by the politics, but what if a government comes in that just absolutely wants to abolish even what's currently in place? Yeah, I, I those those thoughts keep me up at night. Um, yes, it's it's terrifying. And it's really unfortunate that we haven't seen the bold change that is truly needed to separate people from the unregulated drug supply, because I think the rhetoric would be very different if everyone who uses drugs. And I'll always acknowledge that the vast majority of people who use drugs are not, quote unquote, addicted to them. If every drug user had access to a safe supply, we would not be seeing the death toll that we are. And I think the public would have some insight into what uh, a regulated supply could look like and how outcomes would improve for everyone, not just drug users. We are seeing, you know, kind of healthcare system collapse, first responders be burnt out, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars circulating towards a ballooning bureaucracy. And so I understand the frustration and I understand um, why this is kind of given opposition parties an entry point to criticize what is still being framed by the government as a progressive policy regime when it's anything but. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation. I'm really glad that you joined me, Nicole, to talk about this. And hopefully you'll come back and, um, you know, let's continue the conversation because I think that's key. And I think what you guys are doing behind the scenes, again, without a, without a lot of support, is uh, is fantastic. So please keep pushing forward and let's talk again. Many thanks. Eleven minutes before one o'clock here on a holiday Monday. I hope wherever you are, I find you well. Hey, have you gone online and seen these flood pictures and videos from New York City? It is absolutely unreal. And you know, uh, the question that I have, and you know, we'll bring on our expert to talk about this, is the simple fact that cool. I mean, it's chaos, but how, how, how do you clean this up, and how much damage has actually been done to this? It's unbelievable. Talk about this a little bit more. Matt Piper, our CBS News correspondent in New York. Matt, let's get into it. The New York floods. This is obviously something that's captivated everybody everywhere. Walk me through the challenges that are ahead for those in New York City as we speak. Oh, we are live. Okay, got it. Well, I I was going to say that the flooding, uh, you know, the the bad stuff was on Friday. Um, Luckily, a lot of, you know, the rain yesterday and today um, were really great weather days. So the, the, the water is now gone. So really what people have to deal with now is if you had a car that was flooded, there was a lot of flooding in parts of Brooklyn. Uh, and, you know, obviously now <laughs> there's, there's the trouble of going through insurance and seeing if your car starts and if you yep. have an electric car, it's even worse. So that's really where we are now several days after how, when it was really bad. But I guess the question is, as we push a narrative forward, is more so just we, we saw, you know, subway stations and we saw all these infrastructure things that are just completely immersed in water. Um, is there fear for any of the historic venues? Is there any, you know, delays in transit? Like, what are we looking at as of today? 
Yeah, luckily, um, you know, the, the transit system is back and normal, quote unquote. You know, anyone who's ever visited New York City from Canada knows that sometimes you do have to wait a while yes. for the trains. And even, you know, in other places like there in Canada where it says there's a train in two minutes, we don't have that at every station. So you might be waiting for 22 minutes and just hoping that a subway comes. Um, so the subway system is back. But every time that we have one of these storms and you see those social media videos, of deluges of water coming, rushing into the subway. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's when all the officials say, we need to do something. We need to do something. This is bad. This is, you know, these are underground structures that have been around for a hundred years. So it's back. And this is just one of those things where until it happens again, then you'll start to see those videos again. And, And hopefully, you know, the city will be able to make some changes to the sewer system and to everything underground that none of us ever see to try and, not get that to happen again, but every time there's really bad weather, that's what happens. Matt, what was it like to cover it? I mean, you had foot, you had boots on the ground, so to speak. I mean, what were some of the things that you saw? Were people really perplexed by this, or is this just kind of the the beginning of a new norm in New York? I think it's a little bit of both. There were some warnings from forecasters the night before that we could see some weather, uh, but then there were you know articles and, and news people saying that there was going to be about four inches. Well, JFK Airport saw eight and a half inches. That's you know more than half a foot. So that was a record for JFK in any September since records started to be kept decades and decades ago. Um, but you know in terms of being out in it, there were certainly people who were um, perplexed by it because although the forecasters were saying it could be bad tomorrow. The city wasn't saying how bad it was until just before noon when it was already really bad. So you had parents saying, my kids are at school. Now the subways are flooded. The FDR drive on the east side of Manhattan is flooded for cars, taxis, etc. There are kids who are going to be stranded at school and not have anywhere to go. So why didn't we have this day off? Or why didn't we have a, a, a work slash school from home day that we've been used to because of the pandemic? So there were certainly people who were upset that the city didn't do more to prepare earlier in the hours of Friday or in the overnight hours and kind of make some preparations. Okay, schools are going to be closed. It's a Friday or so-and-so is, is, is not going to have to come here because I think that there, from who, people that I spoke to out here, there were people who were certainly caught off guard by just how much rain there was. And you'll get the people that say, and the reason I use the phrase the new norm is because we'll hear those people that say, well, this is a part of climate change and what have you. Uh, Is that one of those things that if you're taking insurance right now that maybe you could essentially down the road see insurance change? I mean, I don't know if you could even answer that, but I mean, philosophically speaking here is that if this is becoming the new norm, maybe people are starting to look at different insurances that perhaps they didn't buy before or earlier in in their home life or car life. You know, it's a good thought, but unfortunately, insurances are actually doing the opposite of exactly what you just said. Really? Places in California, yeah. So after wildfires and mudslides and rain in California, there are now major, major insurers that are getting rid of homes who are trying to insure with them. Or if you are a new homeowner trying to get new insurance, there are some major um companies that are saying we're not going to insure with you anymore so because of how much it's costing these insurance companies now of course insurance companies do have a lot of money from all of us across the country that pay insurance but you're starting to see these places like california and florida where they have a lot of natural disasters and the insurance companies are now saying it's getting to be too much for us and we're going to stop insuring you so you know 
it's a dicey situation in terms of, yes, this could be, you know, a root of climate change. But then on the flip end, you have insurance companies saying, we don't care what it is. It's costing us too much and you can't insure with us anymore. Uh, a final question for you, Matt, and I really appreciate the insight on this. Like I said, I didn't know that until I just asked that question. Uh, real estate is such a big deal when it comes to New York City and Manhattan, and you think of all the billions and billions of dollars that are standing tall in that part of the of the state. But the reality is, is if insurance becomes a bit of a problem and people don't want to move there because of climate change, is, are, are the realtors nervous, or is this just another Tuesday for them? You know, it's another Tuesday. I'll say the realtors are probably nervous because just on Friday um, – you know, rates went up when it comes to mortgages. So that was uh, a kind of a, another big left turn on top of all the rain that we had. That was, you know, kind of something for real estate people to say, oh, gosh, you know, here's mortgage rates going up again. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it's there, there are certainly homes and apartment buildings all throughout the five boroughs of New York City that have basement apartments or basement dwellings, as, as they're called. And those tend to flood really bad. I mean, in all, there were about two dozen people who had to be rescued throughout New York state, not just the city. Um, but that is something that I would assume slash hope that realtors would say to prospective home buyers or, or, or prospective renters, you know, the lower to the ground that you are, the worse that this could be if there is more and more flooding, like we've seen more and more often. I mean, the governor here, Kathy Hochul said she's only been in office for two, two and a half years since Andrew Cuomo was ousted. And she said, I've had to, come up in front of cameras once every eight or nine months and say this is a once in a century storm and she's now said that two or three times in just two years yeah so she's one of those proponents who's saying something has to be done and we're calling these huge once in a lifetime storms every couple of years it is interesting. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to circle back with us. I know that that's in the rearview mirror, but there's still a lot of meat on this bone to chew about. And uh, I thank you for enlightening us here in Vancouver on this. And let's talk again, Matt. Thank you for your time today. Of course. Absolutely. Rob Fain for Jill for about another 25 minutes before Jazz Joel Hall takes you home or, you know, out towards your family. If you're extending your day by your long weekend by maybe a couple hours. I know my family's going to be getting together a little later tonight. Um, you know what? One of the things that is near and dear to my heart as a family of law enforcement is making sure that they are transparent. This has always been a challenge when it comes to the police and the public is transparency. And one of the things that people have been long clamoring for in the G, you know, across Canada, I was going to say the GTA because I've got some family back east as well. But here across the, uh, you know, GVRD is body cams on police officers. To talk a little bit more about this, former West Vancouver Police Chief, Richmond City Councilor, former BC Solicitor General, Cash kind enough to join us. Uh, Cash, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rob. Well, let's talk about this because I think we see this a lot south of the border and in certain jurisdictions, but let's talk a little bit about the pros and the cons of body cams, which, uh, according to a report on Daily Hive, might be coming sooner than later. What are some of the pros, for example, Cash? Well, let me tell you right now, uh, it's coming later. It should have come a lot sooner. These type of... uh, Technology has been around for many, many years. I know the Vancouver Police Department has been studying this for over 10 years right now. So, you know, that's fine. It's on its way. As you mentioned, you've got family back in the GTA. Toronto Police have had this in place for a period of time. Calgary Police and other police agencies have. And everything that's come out of this, although there's a negative connotation expressed by some of the unions that uh, cover police officers, is the fact that it's been advantageous not only for the transparency of policing, but certainly the accountability of 
policing and garnishing the evidence that's required in the technological world that we're in right now, in the way our, our justice systems are, there's added pressure to have that direct evidence that links an individual to a particular activity or a crime. There's no better way that you are going to get that evidence ver- through this type of technology. This is incredible. It's something that we call in just the civilian life, pick up your cell phone, take a visual, take a, a video of whatever you can, whether it's an interaction with a police officer or some type of other interaction. Matter of fact, given the fact that in the uh, British Columbia primarily, we don't have this technology used by our law enforcement officers, we often ask people that have video of a particular incident involving police interaction if they can provide that video for whatever agency may be looking at that interaction. And it's kind of a two-way street cash, is it not? And correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it's not just to, you know, uh, get criminals and, you know, have that, you know, ironclad evidence to put them away. It's also to protect both the, uh, the cop and the citizen, is it not? Absolutely, because police officers are often characterized as being uh, very physical in their interactions with people or accused of possibly not expressing what actually occurred. Now you have that evidence where it should actually back up what the police officer may have done or not have done to deal with an individual. So again, from an accountability point of view of of protecting the police officers for their interactions, and, and most of the interactions are professional interactions that are absolutely justified. And if they're accused of maybe working or dealing with that individual outside of that particular legal framework, we now have the evidence to, number one, ensure that when a complaint comes in that it's immediately looked at or in an efficient way and a very effective way by use of this technology that it's actually looked at. So it lessens the harm uh, and stress that the police officer may uh, be put under or, in fact, increasing the credibility of the police agency because you have that immediate visual Uh, material available that you could actually show to the individuals that are complaining or to the public at large. Cash, he joined us here on 980 CKNW, former West Van police chief, city councillor in Richmond, former BC solicitor general. Cash, uh, you know, the one thing that I always think of when it comes to cameras is privacy concerns. The use of body cameras, it does raise concerns when it comes to privacy because it records interactions in private settings with vulnerable individuals. How do we make sure that we can get effective footage without invading one's privacy? With strict policy, and what we found out, and you know, Axon's been involved in this since they uh, morphed uh, into what they're doing right now from Taser International. So they've been involved in the technology part of it. Part of what Axon has done is they've researched the policies that are actually put in place when we're dealing with these types of body cams available to our police officers. So we have to make sure, and, and what we found here in, in, in working within the law of the land in Canada, that uh, these other agencies that are utilizing it, they've managed to come up with a well-balanced policy to ensure those privacy rights are protected and that the utilization of this technology is appropriate at the time. The officer need to make sure that they undergo and understand the training and the policies attached to it when they utilize this. And it's not 
at their discretion, for example, that if they're interacting with one individual, they may turn it off. No, there will be strict policy as to when you can turn it on, when you should turn it on, and when you can turn it off based on a set of practices and protocols in place. Yeah, selective recording was going to be my next question, but you beat me to it, Cash, which is uh, which is good by me. Let's go to cost and resource allocation, because obviously there's an expense to this. And, you know, I, we can talk about some of the smaller jurisdictions having a tough time being able to do this for their force. But VPD is a big enough network that they should be able to foot the bill for this, no? Oh, absolutely. The uh, How could you not afford to do this? A- again, looking at uh, two sides of this, uh, first of all, from an investigative point of view and capturing direct evidence regarding a particular crime uh, that is so important and documenting a crime scene, something of that nature. But from a complaint po- uh, point of view, where in fact you've got investigative uh, units that are involved in investigating, and it could be just an allegation or a false allegation against the officer, the cost efficiencies that will be created from that are certainly in the long term. In the short term, it is very expensive to utilize this. I think Calgary, when they put it in place, and Calgary, I think, was, and Calgary is a very progressive police agency. They were one of the first ones to utilize this in Canada. I think you're looking at about $10 million of initial cost. But again, Rob, what you have to look at, and I think it's important for these taxpayers and policymakers to look at, is the cost efficiencies garnished over a long period of time based on the duties of not only our law enforcement officers, but for example, bylaw officers are utilizing this technology also. A final one, and I just want to squeeze this one in cash. Could we see this with the ambulance service? Do we see fire and rescue eventually utilizing this as well? You can see it with any service you want because, we, as I mentioned, we already have it by way of uh, all of us carry these uh, devices with us and we record from these devices. We even have some of the agencies that have their cell phones that are issued to them and the minute they're involved in some type of circumstances or interaction, they actually put it in a pouch on their, uh, their body and they click it on so it's videotaping that entire incident. So it can be used in a hybrid fashion with your personal device that you have, but again, the, the protocols for law enforcement will be a lot more uh, stricter as to when and if you can use it and how that is captured and retained within our technological systems attributed to these agencies. Cash, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I love the insight and thank you for your time on a holiday. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.